Matthew chapter 6, going deeper in prayer. I said this to you last week, but I want to say it to you again, that if we are going to go deeper in our walk with God, then we have to go deeper in what it is that we call prayer. Prayer is not just about asking God for what we need, although it includes that. It's far more, isn't it? We, we shared this last week that prayer is about a relationship that we have. It's how we connect with. It's how we communicate with God. And I would tell you that prayer is a gift. Prayer is one of the greatest gifts that we have to have an audience with God where he hears us. We know that he loves us and he responds to us. But I think that many Christians, and I'm not asking for a show of hands today, but many hands would be up because I can already see them in the spirit. Many Christians would probably admit that prayer does not feel like a gift, that prayer often feels like something else. And I want to tell you there are a lot of reasons for that, but sometimes I think as Christians, when we go to prayer, it feels more like flossing our teeth. We know we have to, and it keeps decay out of our mouth. And every six to 12 months, somebody is going to tell us we ought to do it more often, But it just doesn't feel like a gift. I don't meet very many people that say, I love to floss. Now, there are a few of you strange individuals in the room for sure, or at least somebody that wants to break my illustration. But the fact is, they're, they're, that's what prayer can become to so many people, something we have to do, something that another person who seems more passionate about it tells us that we ought to do it more often. But prayer is a gift. And I would tell you that our eyes get blinded over time. The enemy does not want us to pray. He knows that if people get a hold of who God is and the invitation that prayer is to us, that his chances of advancing his kingdom are over. Because we're talking to God. We're talking to the one that has all authority, the one that has all power. And when we talk to him and we know that he hears us and that he answers according to his will, something powerful is always going to happen. But we have to acknowledge that we don't always see prayer for what it really is. So the question might be this today, how do we shift from how we see prayer or how we feel that it is to having this passionate pursuit of the living God in the place of prayer. How do we shift that? I don't have all of the answers and I don't think there is just one answer, but I was thinking this week about one thing and I wanna answer it this way by saying, we need to be consumed with the person of Jesus. We need to know him, we need to love him and we, want, we wanna be with him. And when that is the case, Communication or healthy communication with God is a normative experience. To be in love with Jesus. I'm sure that most of us can remember what it is like to fall in love, where you fall in love with, what a weird term, fall in love. Like, oh, I fell into it, you know? Just feels, anyways. <laughs> I just wish my mind didn't do that when I have a microphone strapped to my face. But you know what it's like, right? You, you get, your heart gets taken with someone and, and, and you're overwhelmed by them. You, you're mesmerized by them. You love, you'll do things that you would never do. Long conversations on the phone. I mean, there's some things I don't even want to tell you that I did. It's like I look back and I go, that is silly. Like, 
I was, my mind was baptized with oxytocin, whatever. I mean, just, there's a whole lot going on there, and, and, and you're overwhelmed and overcome with this, with this person, and, and communication, you can't get enough, right? You can't get enough. You're talking to them all the time, and in our generation, it, it, it's like you're sending texts with lots of emojis, little hearts, little kisses, you know, little silly things. You just send in all those, all right? And then when you get in an argument, you like type with capitals. <laughs> it's just, it's a different generation. But being in love does something that, that you, we can realize today. It, you communicate a lot. You can't wait to talk to them. You'll do things like write letters because it's too late at night. And so you'll do all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, and when you've been married a long time, you look at people doing that and you go, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that special? I do, uh, I've done a lot of pre-marriage counseling and I enjoy it. I really do. I really enjoy it. Um, but it's so funny because when people are in that stage, they just, they, they listen and they don't listen at the same time. And I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I was there. Okay. So I'm guilty, but you like listen and you don't listen. Like you're like, <laughs> the couple's just looking at each other and you're talking about all these very difficult things like conflict resolution and how to get along with family members that may not love everything about you how to merge families, how to take your values and their values and bring them together and compromise. Everybody say compromise. Yeah, you're talking about really hard stuff. Like how one person might have to lay down their dreams and hopes because another person's career might, might, be, might be something that takes over the family. I mean, all this really difficult stuff. And they're like, looking at you, they're like, yeah, pastor. Yeah, you, we know some people have a really hard time with that but it's because they don't have the kind of love that we have. It's <laughs> like, yes, pastor, we, we understand what you're saying, but we just don't know if anybody else feels what we feel. I mean, it's just hard to fathom that people feel the way that, that we, it's like our hearts beat in unison. It's like, it's not love at first sight. It was just like our hearts just united and connected and they've always beat the same. Come back in six months. <laughs> you definitely be beating each other's hearts. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, I look at couples and I go, oh, isn't that cute? Um, but the, here's the truth. The truth is, is that for those of us that have been married a long time, um, we do need our marriages reignited. Amen? And so it's easy to look at that as though it's silly, but it is special. And we could use more of that in our own marriages. We could go back to a place of fresh love. But you know what happens when you go back to a place of fresh love? You start communicating more often. When something happens to you, if you've been married 20 years or longer, and, or maybe even 10 years, and, and you know what happens? You, you stop texting as much. You stop calling as much. I, I'm, I'm going to see them when I get home from work. That, that, that anticipation, that love, that, that your best friend, your lover, the person that you, you love. You, you used to text them all the time. You used to call them. Man, I, I'm going to call you before I get home. I just want to see you at the dinner table. Oh, no, that's not enough. And, and you want to let them know you're thinking about them. So communication is normal when there's fresh love that emerges, right? And, and I think that in a different way, prayer is communication with God. And when there's fresh love, when there's first love with God, communication is normal. It's, it's not some burden. 
It's not some have to. It's not some obligation. And so when we get overtaken by the person and the work of Jesus, that he came for us, that he loves us, you can't stop us from communicating with him. We want to talk to God more often. We'll turn the music off in the car ride and talk to God because we want to. I found that to be the case in my, in my life. And I was reflecting on how the disciples were watching the relationship between the son and the father. They saw Jesus go off to the hillside and pray all night. They've never seen that before. They were used to people standing up on the street corners and praying out loud prideful prayers. This religiosity that was disgusting to them. And Jesus had something with God, the father that they had never seen before. And they were compelled by it. Have you ever watched somebody's life with God and you were compelled by it? There was something fresh that they had, like they loved the Lord, the way they talked about Jesus. You wanted that. And so the question is, how, how do I have more of that in my life? I want to love God like that. Well, the disciples witnessed that between Jesus and the Father. And that's why one of the disciples came to Jesus and said in Luke 11:1, 1, they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. We want to learn what it is that you have so that we can do what we see you do. And friends, we've got to have that same heart today. Teach us to pray. I want to have what God has made available in this thing called prayer. I want more of that. And if we do, it starts, I think, with God igniting our hearts. And when that happens, something special emerges in the place of prayer. That's why I always pray this prayer, Lord, show me the beauty of Jesus. And I'm not ashamed as a man to say that. It sounds maybe funny to some men in particular, but I wanna see the glorious nature of the God that I've decided to follow, who he really is and what he's like. Take the blinders off my eyes, Lord, and show me who you really are so that I'm compelled by you more in my life. I wanna be with you. Jesus' response to the disciples' request is this, Matthew chapter six, verse five. We'll read all the way through the Lord's Prayer. He said, when you pray, this is the how. So when you pray, you're not to go into your inner room, close your, or you're to go into your inner room, excuse me. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say they have the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask. So then pray in this way. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say from the evil one. I think that's the better translation. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We know this passage, most of us. I mean, even if you're brand new to Christianity or you don't read the Bible much, you probably heard the Lord's Prayer somewhere. Um, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but it could be better stated as the disciples' prayer. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17. That's really more like the Lord's Prayer, but I don't want to mess with you too much today. There is a long-standing debate about this prayer. Was Jesus' intention 
as he taught this to the disciples, did he mean for them to recite this liturgically? Did Jesus mean for the disciples to just literally say this whenever they came to God? That could be possible in, in some minds, that, that could be possible in the disciples' minds because Jewish people would pray morning, afternoon, and evening three, three times. They had very specific prayers that they would pray. They, we now have them collected into a book of common Jewish prayers that would be prayed a couple times a day. Orthodox Jews still practice this. They did then and they still do now. And so it could be that Jesus did intend that, but he, he intended so much more than that. And we know that because every time Jesus prayed, he didn't just say this type of stuff. Jesus had expansive prayers. Jesus poured out his heart to the Father. So when you observe the life and the ministry and the prayers of Christ, we know that for when it comes to him teaching his disciples how to pray, that he probably was fine with them saying this, but he probably more meant for them to have this as their core competency as their prayer life, that this meant to be, is, is meant to be expanded from. Start here and expand. These are categories. These are things that matter to you. These are things that matter to me. This is how your prayer life should unfold and how it should look. And so with that in mind, I want to break up the rest of our conversation by looking at the three things that focus first on God and then the three that most certainly focus on us as we pray as well. So the first point is through prayer, we focus on God. I would tell you, I would tell you uh, say it to you this way. Prayer begins with God. It should always begin with God. And that's what we find here in the Lord's Prayer. There are three things that I think are important. Number one, we pray to God as our Father. He says, our Father who is in heaven. And we talked about how God is our Father and prayer is about relationship last week. But one of the questions that I had as I studied this and, and read about it, I've taught on it before, but did the Jewish people, those that were originally hearing Jesus when he said these words, did they think of God as their father? And the answer is yes and no. The Jewish people thought of God as their father collectively. Yes. <laughs> and you might wonder how we know that. Well, we know that from the Bible. Isaiah 63, 16 and Isaiah 64, 8 actually refers to God as a father, the father of us all. God is our father collectively. That's the way that they saw him. But when Jesus modeled a relationship with God between father and son, he brought God into this more personal type of experience. So when he says, pray to your heavenly father, when they looked at Jesus's life with the father, it was way more personal than whatever they understood. And so it was a conundrum to them. Like they believe God is our father overall, but he's not personal. God's not a personal father like this. Jesus made God personal in this way. We were spiritual orphans in our sin, but through Christ, we have been made sons and daughters of God. And the point is this, how we see God impacts how we talk to God. If we see God as our investment banker, if we see God as our bail bondsman, he's the one that bails us out of a jam. If we see God as the big guy in the sky, he's up there somewhere and maybe he does and maybe he doesn't care about us, then we're going to talk to him through the same filter in which we see him. So when Jesus says, pray our father, we come to God as 
our dad. He is our heavenly father. And so the question is, do you or do we see God in this way? Is he our father? Does he love us? Does he protect us? Does he encourage us? Does he watch over us? And no matter what our earthly fathers or our parents were like, God is so much greater. He is perfect. And so if we've had a bad deal as it pertains to our parents, God wants to heal that by fathering us or refathering us. That's what God's good at. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a father to all of us. So when we pray this prayer that Jesus told us to start with, we're acknowledging that we are his children and that he loves us beyond comprehension. If we don't think that when we pray, we need to. If we don't think God loves me when we pray, we need to. That's who we're coming to. We're not coming to someone who's like, well, it's been a long time. Haven't seen you for a while. He's not patronizing us, nor can we impress him. Just coming to him is what God wants. We come to our father. The second is we pray for God's name to be honored. Jesus said, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, what a funny word, <laughs> hallowed. I mean, I doubt this shows up in your home unless you're praying the Lord's Prayer. No, nobody, or you're singing an old hymn. There, there's some hymns that have the word hallowed. Hallowed be your name. What does that word mean? It means to make holy. Sometimes it's translated in the New Testament as sanctified. That's where you'll see it uh, in the New Testament. But the question is, isn't God's name already holy? So why would we pray that his name would be holy if God's name is already holy. Lord, your name be made holy. See, there's a couple things that you have to understand whenever you think about this. It's not just meant to be said and then confusion follows. Hallowed be your name. A name meant a whole lot more in their culture than it does in ours. Like in our culture, when we think of a name, it's just how we identify people and that's it. That's Jared, that's Tony, I'm Ben. Uh, when we, when we want to call out to each other, when I want to scream upstairs because we have a two-story home, I yell my kids' names. That's it. And I very much mean, get down here now. You know, we're all about immediate. I love the book of Mark. Immediately, you know, I preach that to my children. Immediately, come down. It's biblical. And so we identify each other by, by a name, but it doesn't always necessarily mean character, nature, virtue. In their culture, you name someone, sometimes they name them a scenario or they name them by the character that would unfold in their life, nature, character, virtue. For the Jewish person, profaning the name of God was one of the most grievous sins that you could commit. I mean, to profane God's name was a massive sin. Why? Because his name represented his character, his nature, and his virtue. Look at what it says here in Proverbs 22.1, just to understand how they thought of names. The writer says, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver and gold. Imagine that. I would rather have a good name than all of the wealth in the world. I doubt most of us would say that today. <laughs> it's a cultural difference that we have. So God's name represented all that he was. And so when he says, I want you to pray, hallowed be your name, this means the primary goal of our prayers and of course our life is that the name and the nature and the character of God is revealed and honored and esteemed by all people everywhere. 
This is how we pray. Prayer cannot start with us. It has to start with God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, above anything else that I would ask for, above any other need that I might come to you about, I want your name to be glorified. I want your glory in the earth. I want people to see you and know you more than anything else because life is about you. Hallowed be your name. I was thinking about a song that we sing that further illustrates this. You might remember a song. We sing it in our church. We say, your name is great and greatly to be praised. Oh, friends, you got to get excited when you sing that song. Don't you be looking at your shoes. Come on. They're just shoes. Don't, don't be doing, you know, your name is great and greatly to be praised in all of the earth for, for all eternity. Nobody is like our God. Hallowed be your name. This is the kind of prayer and praise that's supposed to overtake the people of God. We're consumed with wanting his glory above anyone else, including our own. And number three, we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, or I'm using the term prioritized. Jesus said this very thing, and he even said on earth, right, as it is in heaven, your kingdom come and your will be done. Jesus taught about the kingdom all the time, didn't he? I mean, all of his parables were about the kingdom. It was always about the kingdom of God. What are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? We're talking about his rule and his reign over all things and over all people. Remember, in their culture, they believed that the Messiah was going to come and set up the kingdom. There was no first and second coming. It was just the coming of the Messiah. And when he came, he would set up his kingdom and overthrow all other kingdoms. And in specific, in their day, the occupation of Rome. And so they were longing for it and they were looking for an end to the injustice and the oppression and their suffering and their pain. And they wanted the Messiah to set up his kingdom. And so when Jesus came and he came seemingly as weak, vulnerable, a man that did not come with military and political power, they were confused because they didn't understand how this could be the Messiah. The disciples were constantly questioning, constantly confused by this. And so Jesus is teaching them to pray this prayer in the in-between time, that there is to be a longing in their hearts for the kingdom of God to be established upon the earth. Your kingdom to come. Now, there were other kingdoms during their time. I mentioned Rome. There was the kingdom of Herod. There was the kingdom of the religious leaders. At least that's what I think. They had their own kingdom, their own principles, their own way of thinking, their own teaching. And there was the kingdom of Satan, and there still is the kingdom of Satan today. And so all of the injustice that they saw, we see it as well. Pain, oppression, difficulty, challenges. Why are people this way? Why is the earth this way? Why do 20,000 people have to die in an earthquake in the Middle East? Why, why does this have to happen? Well, friends, because the world that we live in right now, no matter what political leaders we have, and I mean to say this, no matter what political leaders we have, no matter what men and women are running whatever country they are, they are still not Jesus and it is still not the kingdom yet. And so what if our prayers so often are invested into those that so often fail us? Does it mean that we should be pacifists? No. Does it mean that we shouldn't vote? No. Does it mean that we shouldn't care about politics? No, we should. I care more about that stuff today than I ever have. But there should be in the believer a longing for something that is perfect that only Jesus Christ will lead. 
And if that longing moves out of your heart and all you see is a political kingdom, friends, I am telling you, something has overtaken you that you are missing. Something is over. There is, an, this, there is an angst in the people of God. We are awaiting, we are expecting, we are hoping for, we are longing for the kingdom of God to be established on the earth and we will never feel satisfied until it is. You will always be uncomfortable. You'll be uncomfortable in this skin. You'll be uncomfortable in this world. The Bible says we're sojourners that we are just going by in this world and we're praying for something greater to be established. And you know, when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done, what we are saying is that God's kingdom and God's will is greater. What we're saying is it's gonna get better. So no matter what people might experience in this life, friends, here's the reality that Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna make all things right. And when he does, we're going to live in the glory for which we were created in Christ Jesus. And I look forward to that. Do I want things to be better in this life? Sure. But my hope is not in this life. And if your hope is in this life, friend, I want to tell you to look much higher. <laughs> See, when you start praying this prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His heart starts to overtake your heart. And I, th I thought about this, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? How is God's will done in heaven? Now, angels are in heaven. Saints that have gone before us are in heaven. But angels are the servants of God. And when they hear the will of God in heaven, how do you think they respond to God's will? <laughs> There's a lot of words. Immediately, joyfully. <laughs> um, come on, give me another one. They jump, <laughs> they jump <laughs> immediately, excitedly. <laughs> I mean, it's like when they hear the will of God, they're dispatched right away. There's no negotiation. There's no hesitation. There's no procrastination. There's no shuns. That's us. Sometimes we hear the will of God on the earth and we're like, well, I don't know if that's God. I mean, you could be reading it in the Bible. It's like, I'm not sure if that's the Lord. I need to know the Greek. I do. I need to know what the Greek means. What does the Hebrew really mean? What does God really want me to do? I think he means to, for you to be integrous. I do. I do. It's like on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray that prayer. Lord, we want the earth to reflect what it's really like. And, and ultimately that will happen. Jesus is on the way. We may not see his kingdom right now, but it is packaged. It's en route from heaven's warehouse. And we have the tracking number right here. And we wait with great expectation and prayerfulness, friends. And we're not discouraged because we know what is happening and we are praying for it to happen. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, prayer always begins with God, but it doesn't start there. Of course, it does have a focus with us in mind. Through prayer, we ask God for what we need. Why? Because he's our source. He's our source of all things. He's the source of life. The first prayer I see here is we pray for God's provision. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. How many of you like bread? Does that sound like a good proposition? It does. Lord, just give me some good bread today. That <laughs> I'll live on bread. I, I don't know. I'm a bread connoisseur. My family eats the gluten-free bread. That's not bread, guys. I'm sorry for you. I am. I'm telling you what. That, I know it's getting better for you. I know it's getting better for you, but it, it's not close. 
They have me to try their ice cream at home. They're like, try this. How is it? I said, not the same. <laughs> you know, this is not the same. But, uh, but I understand for you, it tastes amazing. Okay. And so um, all, all, uh, you know, all love to you guys, but uh, I, I have to regularly taste all of that side of life. And uh, it's just not the same, you know. But anyways, I digress. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. He's, he's not talking about about just bread, as we understand it. He's talking about the physical sustenance that we most literally need to be satisfied. Give me enough so that I, my needs are cared for, my needs are covered. For most Americans, though, that's punishment. <laughs> Come on, I'm going there. Here we go. For most Americans, if we're honest, we're rich. We are very, very rich. The poorest among us are rich. That's just the way it is. And so we don't pray, Lord, give me bread and milk. We pray, Lord, give me steak and wine. <laughs> we just do. And we know that it exists out there that people don't have much. And our hearts need to stay committed and connected, as the Bible teaches us, to those that have less. But the fact is, is I've got too much. I'll just, listen, I'll put myself on the chopping block. I won't try to guiltify you today. Yeah, I made up a word, guiltify. There it is. But here's the reality. I've got more than I need. And so I need to become more and more generous as, as the days unfold. Amen? Amen. I mean, I've, I've, got, I've got more space than I need. I've got more towels than I need. I've got more clothes than I need. I've got more than, than, than I need. And so I don't often have to pray, Lord, give me today my, my daily bread. I don't have to pray daily for that. I do have to thank God for the daily bread, though. So for those of us that have needs right now, where we literally, most literally need God to provide our daily bread because we don't know where the money's coming from, we don't know where the food is coming from, or we don't know where our monthly income is gonna come from to pay the rent. For those of you that are in that place, you pray that prayer and Jesus is absolutely saying for us to do that, God will hear that prayer and he will provide for us our daily bread, our needs. For those of us that don't feel like we have to pray that, we do have to thank God for that. We have to thank God that he has already provided for our needs. But the fact is, if we lose our job or we lose our 401k plan or we lose something in this life that seemingly has told us that it's our source, we need to remember that it's not our source. You can lose your job, but you've never lost your source. If God is your supply, you'll know it when you lose something or you have less of what you used to have. And here's my question to us today. With all the things that we have, does it really satisfy having more than enough? Isn't, isn't that why one of the last Proverbs, the writer, he actually writes, give me as much as I need, but don't give me too much so that I might learn to hate you and never depend upon you. Help me to have what I need so that I don't have to grovel and become a thief, but don't give me too much so that I somehow don't depend on you like I'm supposed to. I mean, that's a very powerful and wise proverb, isn't it? Because I have found with all of my stuff and all of my possessions and all of my more, I'm never satisfied by the more. You get a nicer car, it's cool for a month, but then you're like, well, it's got a cool options, but it's never satisfies because you weren't built for just more stuff. That's why we feel great when we give. We, always don't, we don't always feel great up front. It's like helping people move, isn't it? It's like up front, you're like, man, I don't wanna help nobody move. Oh my gosh. 
But then when you're done and you see that they needed your help and you helped them, you feel really great. Not just great about yourself, but you feel great that you were useful. And there's something in us that says, I was made for that. We were made to be generous. We were made to give away our time. We were made to give away our life. We were made to help other people and also to be helped by one another. We were made this way to interlock and serve each other as God has shown us in Christ. That's what we're made for. And so when we pray, give us our daily bread, it's very important that we recognize that all the more that we have in this life doesn't satisfy. It just won't. I thought it was interesting. I was reading Pew Research this week, and you can go on their website. They do a lot of statistics, not only in America, but also the world. They, they polled 37,000 people about the frequency of prayer. I thought that was a lot of people. I don't know how you get that many people to answer your questions, but they basically divided up groups by age and gender or ethni- and ethnicity, and then also by how much income people made. I just thought this was an interesting statistic, so I wrote it down here. The one that was about income. There are other ones in there you could read about, but these are for Christians. For those that made under the poverty line, whatever that might be, 30 grand a year or something like that, those that made under the poverty line, those people prayed at least two times more than others, and they prayed five times more than those that made over $100,000. Isn't it interesting? The frequency of prayer. Those that made less money prayed five times more than those that made over $100,000 a year. I don't know. Are you connecting the dots? I'm I'm trying to show you something here. Because those people that have more don't feel that they need God. And so this is why it's important that we actually pray through the Lord's prayer. And if you don't have to pray for bread to be delivered to you, we do have to thank God that we already have bread in the bread box. And if we do that, we keep God, who is our source and our supply, in front of us. And if we're not praying for it, we're thanking him for it, because we must. God is our source. He gives us breath. He gives us hands. He gives us feet. He gives us mercy every day when we wake up and we can thank him and go to work. Give us this day our daily bread. Number two, we pray for God's forgiveness. He said, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. To forgive means to cancel a debt. And we know that when we come to Christ and we're saved, what what happens is we all owe God a debt that we cannot afford to pay. Romans chapter three says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The wages, but here it is, we're still alive. The wages of sin is death. So if we're still alive, then we need somebody to pay that debt on our behalf. Jesus died on our behalf. He already died. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had to die. He died for us. So if we come to Christ, his death is a substitution for our death, which means that we can live forever and be reconciled to God the Father. We all have a debt that we cannot pay. Jesus paid it for us if we believe in Jesus. This is part of the gospel message. Amen. That's the exciting part. Amen. And so when we come to God in salvation, he forgives us of what we call sin. Everybody say sin. Sin Sin is a condition. Sins are our actions, the plural. Sin is a condition. Jesus paid for our sin at the cross. 
Not just when we lie, steal, cheat, lust. Not just the sins. That's included in sin. But we have a sickness in our life called sin. Jesus paid for the condition of sin at the cross. That's salvational. But there are two kinds of forgiveness. The first is salvational, and that's what that was. The second is relational forgiveness. Just because he has cleansed us of our sin does not mean that in relationship with Jesus, we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We do. How many of you, by show of hands, have sinned at some point this week? <laughs> I'm trying to find who doesn't raise their hand. Doesn't raise their hand. <laughs> Stand up, Jared. Come on, let's get their names. We're starting a new small group. <laughs> Spiritual Awareness 101. Anyways, <laughs> Spiritual Awareness Biblical Literacy. Yeah, I know there's teaching out there that says that when you're in Christ, you don't sin anymore. And it's, I don't have strong enough words. It's just wrong. Jesus paid for our sin. We are born again. The spirit of God lives in us. We are new creations, but we still have that sin attached to this life. That's why we're gonna die. We're still gonna die. And when we die, the Bible says that we will receive a new body. It's eternal. It's made out of titanium, amen, or whatever. I don't know, lasts forever. I'm not sure. It says that these vessels that we have, that these are earth tents. That's all they are, but it's gonna be done away. And so when we... Sin as a Christian, we grieve the heart of God. We still come to him for relational forgiveness because we want to have a clean relationship with God. But here, isn't this interesting? So we come to him and we say, forgive us of our debts. If we've done anything to grieve the Holy Spirit, if we've done anything to offend or violate our relationship, forgive me. But look what he says. He says, as we, that's a very important turn. Uh, In a turn of events, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And here's what I've learned. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Jesus wants us to understand this. In Matthew chapter five, he actually says to those that are listening in the Sermon on the Mount, when you stand at the altar with a gift, knowing that someone has something against you, leave it at the altar and go be reconciled to them, then come back and present your offering. And what this means is, is that we have nothing to offer God with our hands that doesn't first come from our heart. God does not just want us to do something for him or give him something. He doesn't just want us to present something to him. He doesn't need that. He wants our heart. And so he's saying there is something that will hinder your prayers, and that's unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will hinder our life. It's bondage. When we allow ourselves to live in unforgiveness towards another person, no matter what they've done, we may not realize it, but we're living in bondage. And for years, I've had people say to me in different ways, well, you don't understand what I've gone through or what's happened to me. I'm not... Jesus, I don't, I, don't, I don't have to understand that. Jesus went through such pain and suffering on our behalf, forgiving all of us of our sins so that we could do likewise. And we are never more like God than when we forgive people because that's what Christianity is based on. It's based on us receiving the forgiveness of our sins. So if we withhold forgiveness from other people, you better believe that your prayers are gonna be hindered. There is a way that our prayers are hindered because God wants us to get this thing right before we do that. That's why he says something so dramatic as leave your gift at the altar and go make that right, then come back and present this. I wonder what it would be like today if we all did that. Like if there's something that we have against someone 
or we know a person has something against us. And if maybe we've tried to make that right, and the Bible says, be at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. Reconciliation requires repentance. So you can't always make that right, but you can forgive. We can forgive 70 times seven. We need to keep forgiving and keep offering forgiveness just like God does in Christ toward us. But if we want to pray this prayer and we want to have a vibrant prayer life, this is why he's included it in the Lord's prayer. Isn't this amazing? He knows what's gonna hinder us from prayer, so he puts it right in the prayer. Forgive us of our sins and our debts as we also forgive others. Our prayers can be hindered by unforgiveness. He wants us to acknowledge this in prayer. Number three, and finally, we pray for God's protection. Look what he says. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That This language is unhelpful. Does anybody agree with me on that? This is just, to me, this is just kind of unhelpful. And I want to tell you why. It says, don't lead us into temptation. It sort of sounds like it's possible that God would lead me into temptation, But James chapter one says that God cannot be tempted, nor will he tempt. It's not possible. So we know that God's not going to tempt us, but we also know this. Sometimes we pray that God would deliver us from having to go through anything in life. How many of you have realized in your life that trials, temptations, and difficulties are inevitable? You're gonna lose people. You're gonna get betrayed. You're going to have schisms and divisions, even though you didn't want them. You're going to have at times sickness in your body. I'm not saying that God won't heal you, but you're going to have things happen. Stuff's going to start shutting down. Things don't work like it used to. Things are going to happen in our life. And if you can't acknowledge that, freedom for you would be to acknowledge that today. So when we pray this prayer, he's not saying, Lord, make my life as easy as possible. Make it as cushiony as possible where I never have any lack, I never have any relational difficulty, I never have any pain, I never have any issues. Lord, deliver me from all of the difficulties of life. No storms, no muss, no fuss. Lord, I want to get on the lazy river and just slide right in to the Bahama breeze. (laughs) That's not going to happen. And I think some people walk away from God because in their mind or maybe in their doctrine, They've believed that that's possibly how it's going to be. And so when trials and temptations and difficulties come, they don't understand why it's happening to them. And they say, God, why? Instead of saying, God, help me in the midst of this difficulty. See, what I believe Jesus was telling us to pray was not get us out of all of our temptations and trials and to stop any temptation from ever happening. What he was saying was, Lord, you're the one that controls the severity of what I'm going through. And you always provide a way of escape in the temptation. You always strengthen me in the storm. You always refine me in the fire. You're always the one that can deliver me through and not just out of or from. You're the one that does that. And so God, I trust you and I pray for a deliverance from the enemy who wants to manipulate me in the fire. He wants to manipulate me in the storm. He wants to tell me that you're not good. He wants to convince me that you're not with me. He wants to tell me that I'm gonna die, that it's not gonna work out, that nothing is gonna get better. He wants to close my eyes. Lord, deliver me from the evil one who wants to take the trial and use it as something that would help me turn away from you. 
Jesus is saying, deliver me from the evil one, not just bad things. This is a different kind of prayer. We're talking about a God that holds us up in temptation. A God that can keep us in the midst of a trial. Friends, I, I, listen, I will never preach to you, and nor should we to one another, that somehow life's just going to be simple and easy without pain. That's just a lie. We're resilient. We're Christians. We're filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? You're strong. That's why Paul said when he talked about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Don't be strong in yourself. Be strong in God. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're resilient. You're not a victim to your circumstance. You've got God with you in that fire. You know something that other people don't know. You've got someone right there with you. So as you walk with God, you pray, Lord, deliver me from the evil one. Don't allow my mind to believe lies, but to know that you're good and you're here and you're at work and you're moving and things are gonna get better because the kingdom of God is coming. I, um, I was thinking about a funny story and you guys like my funny stories or at least in my mind, I believe you do. <laughs> don't change that, please. All right, there's no emails. All right, no, we don't really like those. All right. Uh, I was thinking about when my son was like four or five and we used to have a lot of people living with us, unnamed people, but we probably had a dozen people live with us over a period of 10 years. And so they became like brothers and sisters to our little kids when they were small. And we just didn't know how else to help people. People needed help. And um, we were we had a lot of people walking with us, like couples were living together, but they weren't married. And the Lord convicted us and said, you can't tell people that they need to separate before marriage and not live together unless you're going to help them live in your house. And so we had a bunch of people living with us, guys, <laughs> as we wanted to teach them how to live a clean life. And if you want God's blessing on your marriage, you got to do it the right way. Now, can God redeem? Amen? He can. But I'm just saying the Lord gave us, um, he gave us criteria for us to be able to give counsel. So we had a bunch of people living with us off and on over the years. And I remember one guy lived with us. And because they were older and they looked like adults, even though they were young adults, our little kids would often have to negotiate in their mind with who these people were to them. So they were like big brother, sister. And so every now and again, the older young adult living in our home would give commands or demands to our little kids because they just couldn't help it because our little kids were rascals at the time. They were doing stuff they shouldn't. And maybe we weren't in the room. And so they would tell them what to do. And my kids didn't know how to work with that. You're not mom, you're not dad. And I remember my youngest son one day, he says to one of uh, the young adults that was living with us, he just like stood up to him like he was Superman, you know, only this tall. He like stood up to him and said, you're not the boss of me. It was just, I was so proud of him. It was so beautiful. It was, <laughs> it was just, and it became this funny thing in our home where we would say it for years, you're not the boss of me. We still say it today, right? <laughs> you know, and if they said it to me, right, that was a bad uh, month for them. <laughs> so, so I was like, yes, I am, actually. Um, but she, he's like, you're not the boss of me. And I was thinking about how um, I think we could use some four-year-old theology right now because there's some things in our life that have become the boss of us. And I want you to know something is that if you're in Christ, you have authority to stand up and to oppose the work of darkness and the lies of the enemy. And you can say to those things on the outside that are trying to control what's inside, you're not the boss of me. 
Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And friends, when Jesus taught this prayer, deliver us from the evil one, he didn't want us to look at our shoes. You know, Lord, just deliver us from the evil, whatever you can do. He wanted us to stand up with dignity and respect, like we know who we are and what Jesus paid for, and to pray the prayer in the authority of Christ, deliver me from the evil one because I don't have to succumb to this kind of power and this nonsense in my life. You don't have to. Come on, four-year-old theology will work just fine when you're going through it. You're not the boss of me. But notice this. The question to me as I look at this passage, this final verse, he says, do not lead us into temptation. Here's a question I have. Do not lead us into temptation. Is Jesus the one leading you? Is Jesus the one leading us? Because if he's leading us, wherever he goes, we go. And whatever he wants for us to have, we have. But isn't it interesting, if he's not the one leading us and we veer off the path, there's some unnecessary baggage and bondage that's going to come into our life. So some of the things we can't just stand up and say, you're not the boss of me. Sometimes we need to turn our direction and repent and make sure that he's the one leading us. See, because that assumes, lead us not into temptation. It assumes that I'm following him. It assumes that he's my leader. It assumes I'm going where he's going. And so when we pray that, we've got to be sure I'm following my leader. And if I'm following my leader, he will always take me to places that I'm supposed to go. And I will have the freedom that I'm supposed to have. Well, maybe you're struggling with some unnecessary bondage and baggage right now. And it's probably, or it's possibly, because Jesus isn't your leader in that particular area. I'm not saying you don't love him. I'm not saying you don't know him, but maybe you veered off that path of following him closely. And this prayer would be a great place for you and I to start, wouldn't it? Lord, you're my leader. Would you stand? I I need to close. I know I'm going to keep going down this road and keep going. Listen to me. God won't take away our trials all the time, but he's not going to tempt us either. But he's the deliverer of our soul. He delivers us from the things that are coming against us in our life. We pray that in strength and authority but he also must be our leader. And I just want to ask you today, last night I had two people that responded and they said to me, Pastor Ben, Jesus is not my leader, but he needs to be. Two people, unashamed to say, that's me, Pastor Ben. Seven people last week. Is there anybody here today that needs to say, Jesus is not my leader, but I want him to be. I want to be able to pray the prayer, lead me not into temptation and know that when I pray it, I'm following him. Like I'm behind him. Wherever he goes, I go. Whatever he wants, I want. Whatever he says, that's mine. That's that's what I'm after. And I'm covered and I'm cared for and I'm protected in in that. And so that prayer, obviously that prayer is powerful deliverance when we pray it, but he's got to be our leader. So I'm going to pray with every head bowed. Is there anybody here today you'd say, Pastor Ben, Jesus is not my leader, but I want him to be. I want him to be. Maybe you've never given your heart to Jesus. You need his forgiveness from your sin. You need to be restored to relationship with your heavenly father. All this stuff about prayer is not going to matter unless you permanently connect that relationship through Jesus Christ. That's where forgiveness comes. That's where restored relationship comes. And so today, if Jesus is not your leader, but you want him to be, he made it really easy for us. 
All we do is give our life over to him. And he helps lead us the rest of the way. If you're here today, raise your hand and say, Pastor Ben, I want to do that today. Yeah. Is there anybody else? I want to make Jesus Christ my leader, my Lord, my Savior. I want to follow him. And I'm acknowledging that today. Just raise your hand if that's you. Okay, I see two of you. Is there anybody else? Pastor Ben, that's me today. For those of you that were raising their hand, we want to pray for you after the service. We want to pray with you right up front. If you could come up front or we'll come to you, we want to pray with you after the service and make that happen. He makes it really easy. But for the rest of us, Lord, we thank you today. We thank you for this prayer outline that you've given to us, Lord, and, and now we, we know it. Some of us have known it for years, but Lord, would you help us to engage it? None of us can say we don't know how to pray because we've got it right here in the word, Matthew chapter 6. We never have to say that. We know it's right here. So Lord, I pray that you give us grace and you would fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we would be a people of prayer in the days that we're in. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In Jesus' mighty name. And the church said, come on, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.